the Crude Audacity Podcast. dedicated to networking, leadership, and education. Since its inception, DPC has been a cornerstone of the petroleum industry. The DPC prides itself on providing a thriving community for its members to build meaningful, prosperous relationships with other industry professionals. You are listening to the Crude Audacity Podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. I am Catherine Mills. Energy clarity is everything. Understanding what oil and gas provides to the world, from first world to third world, is extremely important and often ignored by the media, politicians, and Hollywood. It is a study in hypocrisy. But with over 3 billion people still living in darkness, it is crucial that we, the energy industry, continue to push, promote, and discuss the ethics behind supplying reliable and affordable energy to the underdeveloped world. I had the great fortune to sit with Robert Bryce to discuss his new book, A Question of Power. Robert has spent his life researching and analyzing the value of energy impacts and energy clarity. His research is truly a discussion that everyone in energy, be they pro or con, needs to read and understand. Enjoy this interview. I truly believe that Robert's research is crucial to the success of energy and the future of energy clarity. Robert Bryce, welcome to the Crude Audacity Podcast. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Thank you so much. This is so fun. I love what you're doing. I love the stance you take on energy and energy clarity and pushing forward all that we do for humanity. So, I mean, you are definitely one of my favorites and one of my personal heroes. And I love what you do because you provide a narrative that most people do not think about. And because of you, I think we will, as an industry, as a fossil fuels industry, be able to gain traction where we have failed in the past. So before we kick it off, can you please give us your history? How did you get started from the beginning? Why energy? Why the human component? And honestly, how did you get to where you are now? Um, Well, why energy? Um, uh, Tulsa's my hometown, Tulsa, Oklahoma. So for a, a brief time was the oil capital of the world. My dad, when I was a kid, had a license plate on the front of his old Pontiac Bonneville, had Tulsa, oil capital of the world. I love that. Um, he, my dad was in the insurance business. He wasn't in the energy business, but he knew a lot of people that were. Mm-hmm. And so growing up, inevitably in Tulsa, I ran into people who were in oil and gas or were in the pipeline business and were building pipelines in Panama or, or in Iran or doing things in in the oil fields and as a kid i hunted quail i don't hunt anymore but i hunted quail in, in oil you should fields still hunt it's well, so fun <laughs> so anyway the first article i ever published was in high school in my high school newspaper uh it was anti-nuclear i've come a long ways 40 years later i'm pro-nuclear that was your first the very first published article oh, and, scandalous my, i know uh, 1977 <laughs> but that was the framework of that time right that the anti-nuclear movement was strong and frankly i didn't understand what i was talking about and (laughs) so anyway fast forward to today how did i get here well i've always been fascinated by the energy business Mm -hmm. um i started publishing about it more than 30 years ago uh articles i wrote for the christian science monitor other places and um 
Then uh, my first book was on Enron, came out in 2002. Uh, it was called Pipe Dreams, Greed, Ego, and the Death of Enron. And then since then, now I've published my sixth book, Question of Power, mm -hmm. uh, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations. And in my view, they've all just kind of logically followed the, the preceding book. That okay. the one led to another and led to another. And I've just been lucky in my career, you know, never to have a real job and, and be able to uh, <laughs> follow my passion on, on learning about the energy business, which is the world's most biggest and most important business. I absolutely agree. Well, I love that you think you're fun employed because I think what you do is just game changer for all of the energy sector. I enjoyed your talk more than you know yesterday, but your newest book, A Question of Power, Electricity, and the Wealth of Nations. Can you, I want everybody who listens to this podcast to read this. So they a have amen. a... <laughs> but this, they need to have a more educated, unified discussion about energy because right now we are fighting ourselves... like cutting off our nose to spite our face. And that's just not the answer. So can you talk to us about the book a little bit? Of course. Uh, and honestly, why everyone should be reading it? Well, why should everyone read it? Well, what uh, prompted you? Give us right, all the well, dirt. It just came out March 10th. Um, electricity is the world's most important and fastest growing form of energy. Yes. Nearly everything we read, nearly everything we eat, touch, or wear has in one way or another been electrified. Some impact, yeah. This modernity and, and electricity are inextricable. Yes. That this is the driver of modern life. Everything we think about, every you know, we, we don't think about being plugged in and yet we're plugged in all the time. All of it due to our ability to harness electrons. Mm -hmm. So why should people read it? Because all of the things we care about, inequality, women's rights, girls' rights, climate change, the, you know, the, the, the future of the planet, um, the, the future of the Islamic world, all of them are inextricably tied to or closely tied to electricity availability. So um, that's the short pitch. But I think we also, when you look at the longer term and, and what else does the book accomplish, I, I look at the past, the present, and the future of electricity. I look at how uh, electrification cha changed the shape and size of our cities. I look at the present and where is, is demand growing electricity demand for weed production even here in denver you would be surprised in, how much it takes to it, make a joint it, it is a remarkable <laughs> amount of electricity required to grow pot and it is one of the fastest growing forms of uh, uh, fastest growing areas of electricity demand the other area where electricity demand is growing very rapidly is in data centers including mm -hmm. those that are run by amazon apple uh, alphabet etc so that's the short pitch uh, i'm very proud of the book it yes. took me about three years to write um and it really ex puts the spotlight on electricity. One of the things I wanted to ask you, I get pushback on this from numerous people constantly. Uh, one of my favorite terms is greenwashing. And the reason I enjoy that term is because the phrases zero impact, no impact, zero emissions, clean energy, these are all marketing phrases. They actually mean something different to just about everyone out there. So when you have a conversation about energy clarity, how do you approach these topics? How do you approach these words? And what is your definition? That's a really good point and a really great question because one of the things that is interesting in listening to the debate is that the proponents of renewables will say, well, I'm for clean energy. Well, what does that mean? Yeah, exactly. And that, But in, in my view, what it has become is a code phrase for only wind and solar. Okay. That, that, I would that, agree. That that is, in fact, what has become the de facto uh, uh, definition of that in 
practical use because generally the groups that are pushing this phrase or using it are anti-nuclear. Mm-hmm. They don't want to include hydro. I know. And, God forbid. And beyond that, well, biomass and geothermal are, I mean, they're lost in the decimal dust. They don't, <laughs> they don't amount to really even, well, maybe 1%. But they right? don't even make the conversation anymore. Like, no, to your they're point, not, they're maybe 1%, but they're completely off the table. Well, and further that biomass, I would argue, is not green. It's not, it, it may be renewable, but... I'm old enough to remember when environmentalists wanted to keep trees upright. And now oh. the idea is, oh, because of climate change, we want to burn trees to create power. Well, that's a terrible idea. I heard they're actually calling it green natural gas. I mean, it's it's insanity. And, and <laughs> I, write, I wrote about it in Power Hungry, my fourth book. And mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't recall the numbers off the top of my head. But the, the, the scale of the amount of wood that you would need to displace, say, coal in the United States, I think it's something like twice... The entire wood yeah. consumption of the United States. We would I mean, shave these, it down. They're just cartoonish numbers. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so now what are we seeing? We're shipping wood pellets from American forests to England to, to be burned in the Drax power plant in England so that they can comply with EU regs on CO2 emissions. I mean, this is deeply nuts. I mean, it's just deeply, deeply nuts, but talk about the crazy. impact of that. You think that it didn't take oil and gas to get those wood chippings across the ocean? Well, of course. And, and from what I understand, they not only only are they does it require a ocean going vessel burning uh, bunker fuel or fuel oil that the the chips from the the, the chipping mill to the port are being transported by truck so no. that's diesel fuel so i mean it's on 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 the face of it it's like well this is nuts i mean yeah. it's deeply crazy but it, this is where we are mm-hmm. on some of this push for clean energy because and it's something that I wrote about, in fact, in an essay I published last week in National Review, this idea that CO2 is the only villain. Well, no, it's not the only villain. Mm-mm. And and the, the piece that I wrote was about Freeman Dyson, who died February 28th. And he wrote an essay in 2007 in edge.org and when it, which he pointed out he you know he was a skeptic about some of the climate models and to me that wasn't the most important thing rather it was his point that the greatest evils are poverty and yes. illiteracy and people living in the dark which is a, really one of the themes of my book of I the know. new book and his 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 conclusion was if it means adding a little bit of co2 to the atmosphere to bring these people out of the dark well that's a that's a that's a trade i'm willing to make i'm yeah. paraphrasing what he said but i completely agree and i think that that's one of the the main points in a question of power is mm-hmm. that as you look at the world today where you have three billion people using less electricity than my kitchen refrigerator it's criminal how do you bring those people into the modern world how mm-hmm. are we going to double global electricity uh production in the next 10 to or next 20 to 30 years that's a key challenge and i think it's inevitably going to mean more co2 because we're going to have to use hydrocarbons whether it's coal or oil or natural gas to meet some of that demand absolutely well one of the things you talked about uh the other day was the definitions of high watt low watt and <laughs> blackouts basically uh, unplug yeah. exactly can you take us through what that means so that people listening whether you're in fossil fuels or whether you're against fossil fuels you understand what that means for humanity sure sure. so it's one of the graphics in the in the first part of the book um and it's uh, one some some data that i'm very proud of Mm -hmm. because we crunched world bank data looked at all the countries of the world calculated all the populations added them all up what did we find well that there are over three billion people who are living in unplugged countries places where per capita electricity consumption is less than a thousand kilowatt hours 
per year on a per capita basis. Mm -hmm. Well, my refrigerator uses about a thousand kilowatt hours per year. So, I mean, imagine four out of 10 people in the world are using less electricity on average on a per capita basis than an average American refrigerator. Exactly. I mean, this is a scale story. This is really the kind of comparisons that I think are key to drive home the, the, the great inequality that exists today. Um, so that's the unplugged world. The low watt world are people who live in places where per capita consumption is between 1,000 kilowatt hours per year and 4,000. And then the high watt world is above 4,000 kilowatt hours per capita per year. First why, world problems. <laughs> for, well, but why 4,000 kilowatt hours per capita? That was uh, uh, the threshold that a, a scientist named Alan Pasternak in 2000 did an analysis that looked at countries all over the world and found that the human development index which is a single number that assesses the health and wealth of countries yeah. above 4000 kilowatt hours people's livelihood or their their living standards don't rise substantially so it's kind of a threshold for the good life yeah so are there any countries out there that are purposely in the low tier, the low watt uh, range that they're keeping themselves there? Or is it literally just a question of poverty? Well, the two go hand in hand, right? And this is one of the chicken, is it the chicken or the egg? <laughs> do you need electricity to make people, to bring people out of poverty? Or mm -hmm. do you need wealth to have people able to buy electricity so they can come out of poverty? It's both. Okay. The, there's a bi-directional relationship between electricity use and economic development. So the, the, the more economic development, the greater the economic activity, the more electricity you use. But the more electricity you use, the greater the economic activity. So uh, the way I phrase it is that there, there are no rich people who are electricity poor. <laughs> I like that. That's a very good way to put it. Uh, do you notice any energy gaps across the United States in terms of the lower 48? Is there a disconnect between what we have versus what we can deliver? Well, of course. I mean, there are pockets of desperate energy poverty in America. Um, I didn't write about it in the book, um, even though it's dear to my heart, but I lived on the Navajo Reservation for about two years. And there's something like 30% uh, of the, uh, it's 15%, there's something like, uh, there's several tens of thousands of households on the Navajo Reservation that are not connected to the electric grid. Mm -hmm. And that's a function, really, of the tremendous distances, the tyranny of distance, of it being able to extend electric lines to some of these remote areas on a reservation that's as big as the state of West Virginia. Yeah. So there are pockets in America still of desperate electricity poverty, um, and it's a very difficult problem to solve. I would say so. We are seeing in our political spectrum right now, being a presidential year or a candidacy year, uh, just this tout of the green movement and anti-fossil fuels and turning off fracking. And people are eating it up. And it's unbelievable the disconnect between what you consume versus what you or how it gets there. So can you kind of talk to us what you're noticing across the the current, uh, I guess, political landscape and sure. those haves versus have nots versus the haves telling the have nots they still can't have it. Sure. <laughs> well, I think the Green New Deal is the obvious example of this. Yeah. Right? Being pushed by uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, he put forward a version of the Green New Deal, 16 trillion dollar price tag where are we going to get that money well it's a good question especially at a time when under a republican president the, the united states is running trillion dollar annual deficits yeah we have an annual debt or a federal debt of 22 trillion dollars yes so 16 trillion dollars is a big big number okay so but set that aside okay the the fundamental problem and it's one that i talk about at length in the, the latter part of the book is 
that it ultimately is a land use question. In addition to questions about fiscal ability, questions about intermittence, about intermittency and renewables, it's fundamentally a land use challenge. And the, the thing that to me is so fascinating today is that in Vermont, Bernie Sanders' home state, there are no wind projects being developed. In fact, in January, the last pending wind project was canceled by the project developers because they said of the, the hostile political environment in the state. But Vermonters don't want wind turbines in their neighborhoods. So and it's keep it out of the, my backyard. And yet you had the f- most famous Vermonter <laughs> in America saying, oh, we're going to go all renewable. Well, where do they plan on putting this stuff? It's mm-hmm. part of what I call the vacant land myth, that there's a bunch Ooh. of open land out there that we're just going to put a bunch of this stuff on and nobody's going to care. It's just not true. Yeah. Well, I mean, the problem it all goes back to is climate change. And the climate, people seem to have this idea that the climate is not meant to change. And then it goes back to CO2 emissions, which are still trace amounts in our atmosphere. Yes, they are rising. Yes, our industry is doing everything it can to mitigate and go, quote unquote, green. But can you start breaking down the disconnections for us of why people think that that is the only problem? Well, I, I don't talk too much about climate change in my book because yeah. I, I don't I don't to me, it's not a question of what you believe right about. Uh, the question is what if you think CO2 is a problem, then what is the solution? Exactly. What is the way forward? And that's for 10 years. I've been saying, well, it's natural gas and nuclear end to end. Mm-hmm. Now, I will throw in solar and storage. The solar and storage, as I saw in Lebanon, is going to make a big difference, in, you know, and, and particularly in rural areas. But if we're serious about low carbon and, and getting lower carbon sources that can, that are scalable and affordable, natural gas and nuclear are the obvious ways forward. Um, unfortunately, I think nuclear is not going to be able to grow very much because of the tremendous tr- uh, challenges it faces politically, economically. Um, and, and so I think natural gas in, it has already shown it's the fastest growing form of primary energy globally. Yes. Um, and we've had tremendous discoveries of natural gas globally, especially offshore Africa. So what I see in the near term, and by that I mean the next 10 to 20 years, Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see more electric. We've already seen it here in the United States, a big shift toward gas and generation. Um, All the coal and nuclear plants that are being closed are largely being replaced by by natural gas. I think this is something else that we're going to see globally as well as a trend toward more consumption of gas. Can you take us through the history as to why nuclear failed? What exactly oh, happened gosh, there? How, how many hours do we have here, As Catherine? many as you need. But I'm just saying, like, it, it's such an obvious source. And it never gained traction again. And things happen. Things happen in every industry. And we do have catastrophic downturns. But it was such an option. Well, I mean, some of it was the opposition of the environmental groups here in America that they did not want nuclear power. Do you mean Greenpeace, Greta, I mean, and Sierra the, Club? I mean, the, 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 well, this predates Greta. You know, Greta was only a, a, a notion back when. <laughs> but yes, Greenpeace, Sierra Club, Natural Resources Defense Council, um, the, the biggest environmental groups in America for decades have been anti-nuclear, mm-hmm. and they have not changed their minds. And they have been some of the leading a river keeper in New York in New York State was one of the key uh, proponents of shutting down Indian Point. Never mind that this is one of the most important assets for the entire state of New York and for the city of New York. Absolutely. So why hasn't nuclear gained traction? 
Well, I mean, the short list is it, it still costs too much, and re- nuclear or utility executives are not going to effectively bet the company on the technology. Yeah. So you have some technology risk. You have a lot of capital risk because the, the plants cost so much. Um, and, and, and as well as the technology risk is that you've got uh, right now, you can only build them really in 1,000 megawatt increments, and that's a lot of new capacity. Correct. So it's been far less politically risky to build gas and 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 you can get subsidized and and remove all political risk essentially by building solar and wind so you know if you're a utility executive it hasn't been a hard decision but there are a <laughs> lot of reasons why nuclear has not uh, gained market share over the last 30 or 40 years and it's unfortunate but that's the reality well you say it's unfortunate but do you think that it's ever going to be a potential solution or do you think it's just been wiped off the table at this point i think that we have to think now in decadal time frames that's kind of hard to do especially for us millennials it's, it's very hard to do um but that's the reality that when you look at the landscape today mm-hmm. and you see Plant Vogel in Georgia is now years behind budget and billions, uh, uh, years behind schedule, billions of dollars over budget. Um, and it's going to end up costing on the order of $20 billion, mm-hmm. which is a, a really an insane amount of money yeah. for 2,000 megawatts of capacity. <laughs> um, so even if we're able to, and I'm hope, I believe that we will, be able to license a new uh, uh, a suite of modular reactors, small modular reactors, even if with a new chemistry, molten salt or or uh, high temperature helium or yeah. some other some other uh, uh, technology. Even if we have a new reactor come along that's say 50 megawatts or 100 megawatts, to scale that up to the gigawatt or terawatt scale, it's going to take years and even decades. And if we're serious about reducing CO2 emissions, we don't have that much time. Mm-hmm. Well, our, to, to your point, our next option is coal, correct? So do you, there's such an anti-coal movement just across this country. It doesn't seem to be in the rest of the world, but America, the lower 48, has this anti-coal rhetoric. We're, and coal has been declining rapidly. Coal consumption in the U.S. now is at its lowest level since the 1970s. But aren't we the only ones declining? No, Western Europe is using less coal as well. So it's first world. It's really the U.S. and Western Europe where coal burn is declining. Interesting. But when you look at the numbers globally, coal consumption has has plateaued. It's not falling. But we still, on a global basis, we're using the royal we here, coal consumption or the coal-fired generation still amounts to about 38% of global electricity production. Okay. And it's been at roughly that level, 38 to 40% since the 1980s. Yeah. So why is that? Why are countries like Vietnam, India, China, um, uh, 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 the Philippines, um, Turkey, why are they building coal-fired capacity? Because coal is not just abundant, it's super abundant. It's geographic, the deposits are geographically widespread. Yes. Um, and there's very little technology and capital risk hmm. because there are a lot of companies that can build that kind of technology, whether it's standard subcritical uh, combustion, supercritical or ultra supercritical, which should be the technology being deployed by country, companies all over the world. Um, the Japanese are building ultra supercritical plants, um, which uh, to me is quite interesting. You have Japan, the home of the Kyoto Protocol, hmm. is now, and the New York Times reported on this recently, now is planning 22 new coal-fired power plants. And you know what the argument I said the other day was, they're doing that why is everybody hating on coal? And the response was, well, it's an island. It doesn't have wind, solar, and sun. 
last it's I hev- checked, it's heavily populated. But and last I checked, wind, solar, and sun are the reasons we go to islands. Well, Japan is a, is a unique country in a lot of different ways. It's okay. a very homogeneous population, but also very heavily populated. Mm-hmm. So they don't have their vacant land. No, not so. It's so a land use issue again. It's, it's definitely a land use issue. Interesting. But it's also an economic decision. Japan has closed m- almost all of their nuclear plants after Fukushima. And I was in Japan uh, a couple of years ago, and they need reliable electricity to fuel their industry. Absolutely. And so they have made the decision that they cannot go back to nuclear in any substantive way, but they also can't meet their demand with renewables. So they and and natural gas imported LNG would be too expensive on an ongoing basis. It's cheap right now. Okay. But yeah, unfortunately. But, but they have decided <laughs> that they're going to to move to coal okay. because that is what they their economy uh, requires. And so, you know, one of the things that was clear to me in, 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 in the book, and I also made a film, companies and individuals and countries are going to do whatever they have to do to get the electricity they need. Yes. And they are not going to be constrained about concerns about air pollution or CO2 emissions because economic decisions are going to be the priority. And it's all about the level of toxicity, but we will get into that. So one of the things I have discussions with my friends and uh, people who are in different sectors of energy, um, we always use Japan and Germany as our, I guess, our topics of argument because everybody is interpreting how they are evolving in terms of renewables, coal, and natural gas differently. So can you break down the the case studies that um, is Germany since we just hit on Japan? Sure. And, and it's remarkable, the similarities in some ways, because mm-hmm. um, both heavily industrialized countries, both yes. obviously on the wrong side of, uh, of the war in World War II, but were rebuilt in part, uh, you know, after World War II as it, and became industrial powerhouses. Um, but G- Germany is an interesting case study because it has taken the renewable push arguably further than any other country in the world, uh, beginning with their, their it's called the energy venda, the energy transition. Okay. Um, and they have now, well, by 2025, they will have spent $500 billion on the energy venda. That's amazing. But where are they today? After yeah. uh, Fukushima, the decision, exactly. the political decision to close their nuclear plants, they are burning as much lignite, low-rank coal, yes. as they did 10 years ago. Yes. There's... Their CO2 emissions have declined, but not to the point where they're meeting their targets under the Paris Agreement or their own specified targets. But further, their expansion of renewables and in particular their expansion of wind has hit a dead end because of local opposition. Again, because of land use. Interesting. Um, They needed, um, by now, they needed to have something like 3,700 miles of high voltage transmission lines built. They've built less than 100 miles. Mm -hmm. They need um, it to, to continue building enormous amounts gigawatts of new wind and the wind industry has effectively been stopped in its tracks the low last year 2019 they added the the smallest amount of new wind capacity since 2000 Mm -hmm. so again these are land use issues and they're important and i think they're really intractable i think that there is no easy solution here unless the federal government just decides oh we're going to bigfoot these small people and uh, you know these rural areas and i don't think the rural areas are going to stand for it it's politically very unpalatable Interesting. What are your thoughts on the Paris Accord? Because every time I hear about it, I realize how much people are using certain portions for their own narrative. There's no full uh, holistic conversation happening about the impacts of the Paris Accord. So can you kind of take us through that? 
Well, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert, but what what <laughs> um, what was obvious about the Paris Accord was that the for you know for India and China, their commitments were effectively we'll get back to you or we'll <laughs> or we'll get back to you after our emissions peak. Yeah, and and so it was not um, you know was it a I think it, uh, as a political movement it was more symbolic than it was a real achievement in terms of making slashing rather co2 emissions to some level that is going to make a big difference in global climate okay um and you know pakistan for instance essentially said uh, we'll get back to you they wrote their nationally <laughs> they're like nas- we're waiting on trump to decide <laughs> nationally determined uh contribution um and it essentially said well we're still a developing country. We're, not, you know, and and the Pakistanis are building coal-fired power plants. Exactly. So, uh, you know. So what did it accomplish? I mean, you just said that like it was just a feel-good measure for the public. I don't know. You know, feel-good. It was a very political document, and it was about intent. And what I think has happened every year since Paris is a lot of meetings held to say, well, we're going to, this time we're really going to make strict enforceable limits. So I don't think it's just about Paris. I think it's about Kyoto. You look at the Kyoto Protocol, you look at at the the Rio Summit, you know, back the entire history of these climate efforts. Yeah. They have not been able to achieve in, not even once, an enforceable agreement where countries will be bound to reduce their emissions. Mm -hmm. And I think that the reason is simple. It's that hydrocarbons still comprise 85% of global primary energy consumption. And for political leaders, for them to commit to slash hydrocarbon use means reducing economic growth. And they're simply not willing to do it. So when Trump pulled out of it and the whole world acted like we were the worst people in the world for even remotely saying this is not for us, what were your thoughts? Um. You Not know, trying to get political yeah, on you. I just well, want, I mean, you're such an in, expert. What's the gut reaction? Inevitable. Energy is inevitably political and shouldn't be. I mean, BTUs are... Oh, be- I want my lights to turn on as much as the Democrat next door. Well, sure. <laughs> Good point. Yep. But I think that, you know, some of that, frankly, was just overblown. You know, that, that... But, you know, I think some of it, to be honest, too, was, you know, let's be clear. Trump it revels in rubbing people's noses and things. It and, is kind of funny. And, and that this was a way to do it. Okay. And so, um, but I, I think that fundamentally, though, the Paris Agreement was deeply flawed. And mm-hmm. it was important that everyone stand up and salute. And when everybody didn't salute or the commitments they made were not to substantive uh, um, uh, reductions, well, that part got overlooked. And, uh, and when you look at, in fact, the latest IEA reports on their projections, um, even if everyone adheres to the Paris Accords, hydrocarbons still are going to provide the overwhelming uh, majority of global primary energy. So again, I think a lot of the Paris Agreement was, you know, it, uh, it was a lot about symbolism and instead of a reality of making drastic cuts in emissions. Exactly. And it's kind of funny. Everything goes back to the fossil fuels portion of the energy spectrum, the oil and gas industry. And like you just said, we aren't going away. Now we might adjust, we might figure out a way to bring along these alternatives and more capacity than we have, but they really haven't changed over decades now. At least our demand for them has not changed over decades. Well, I think the key here, and it's really, you know, you know getting back to the book, it's really about electricity and mm-hmm. how are we going to meet electricity demand growth? Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm adamantly in favor of natural gas and nuclear. And that's where one, I think the Trump administration, like the Obama administration, like like the Bush administration before it, has missed an opportunity to really push hard 
on nuclear. Okay. And that this is one area. In fact, I've written a piece for the Globe and Mail that I, Globe and Mail in Toronto that I'm hoping is going to be published in the next few days. But pointing out that the Canadians might uh, steal a march on the U.S. in getting licensing for modular reactors. Interesting. Um, because, modular reactors. Because the well, small modu- modular yeah. reactors we talked about before, but but that. The the necessity is to provide more electricity to more people. Okay. And what I found is that all over the world, countries and individuals are going to do what they have to do. And if yes. it means having a gasoline fire generator in their backyard, if it means subscribing to the mafia, the generator mafia who use <laughs> a diesel generator in their neighborhood. Yeah. Or if it means that India is going to build more coal plants, they are going to do what's or Japan building more coal plants. They're going to do what they have to do because electricity is essential to modernity. Do you think batteries will ever be the answer to the the green initiative? Or I think it's well, short-sighted. Well, batteries have a role. I mean, we use them all the time. I'm looking at my, you know, my phone here on the desk. This recording device. I mean, and this recording <laughs> device. They're, you know, we use batteries on a daily basis, but we use them at the, you know, the 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 the, the individual single digit watt quantities when when we talk about the global demand for electricity we're talking about the trillions of watts terawatts of needs Mm -hmm. Um, and that's why the challenge the scale challenge is so daunting where we need over the next 20 years or so to double global electricity generation capacity we need to go from about six terawatts now to about 12 12 trillion watts of capacity we need 12 times the size of the u.s grid whoa so we have in the U.S. today about one trillion watts, one terawatt of capacity. We need to add six new Americas, six new, more United States' worth of electric generation capacity. That's That makes your head hurt. It really does. But inevitably, I think it's a lot of that capacity, like it or not, is going to be from natural gas, likely from coal. A lot of it could be renewables, but I think, as we talked about, the land use challenges for solar and wind are enormous. So smaller scale solar with storage to, you know, get to your point about batteries, I think is definitely going to be uh, uh, is definitely going to grow because it you don't require long transmission lines um, and and you can have that generation close to the points of need. But, to you know, batteries require also to finish my last point on this. You have to dig a lot of stuff out of the ground. Yeah. Lead. Uh, a cobalt, lithium, uh, neodymium, praseodymium, all these other green elements, all of them have to be dug out of the ground. And that's a big challenge. What do you think about the green movements that are happening now in 2020? We are seeing Greenpeace pop up. We have Greta. And Sierra Club is even making uh, more of a stance than I'm used to, at least news-wise in the past. So what is their end mission? What is their actual end goal? Because if it's really to eliminate the need of you know, reliable, cheap, affordable energy, then that's a question of ethics. Well, I, I talked about this in my, my presentation the other day here yes. in Denver, but <laughs> clearly some of the motivation for, and I'm not members of these groups, but when you look at some of their public stances about development, particularly in the developing world, and we can talk about domestic politics, international politics, but to me what's interesting about the, you know, particularly in terms of electrification efforts that some of these groups are opposing are, are trying to force the World Bank to quit financing any hydrocarbon projects anywhere in the world. Well, that has real consequences. Yes. So and now are these and one of them was a, 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 a coal fired power plant in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. They effectively forced the World Bank and OPEC, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, um, to stop funding that project. Well, 
I think Chinese banks or some other funders stepped in. But I, I think there is an ethical dimension here, a humanist ethic yeah. of questioning, well, why are you opposed to financing for projects that could help electrify people in the developing world? It's is a life the, is and that, death issue. Is that an ethical stance? And I think in many cases it is not. How Well, when you run into that conversation with them, what – what are you seeing? What I mean, everyone has kept, in my opinion, most people have kept their talk tracks the same for the last 10 years. They're not saying anything new. So why do they get the movement behind them that they do? Well, why is the World Bank so damn afraid of them? Well, look, again, these are a, a big political moves. And I think, you know, again, the the question is, how do we meet global demand? Mm -hmm. Where From where is this going to come? And I think that that's the key challenge. And it's one of the themes that I think is essential to my, you know, again, in, in the book. You know, there are a lot of pressure groups around the world that are trying to move the needle. But I think what is clear is that when you look at electrification efforts, um, that in, 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 in one of the things that was, is interesting to me is work being done by development people like Todd Moss. At the, he was at the Center for Global Development. Now he has an outfit called Energy for Growth Hub in which he's pointing out that natural gas can bring a lot more electricity to a lot more people. In fact, tens of millions, or yeah. tens, potentially tens of millions of more people yeah. than a renewables-only solution. Yes. So I, I think inevitably we have to look at this, again, through the humanist lens. How do we bring more people out of poverty? And it's not something that the U.S. can and can necessarily force. These countries and these individuals, these companies, they have to work together. They have to see a profit. They have to, the grid, electric grids have to be self-sustaining. Mm -hmm. They have to pay for themselves. It's a very complex problem. So something you have said for a while now that has always resonated with me is it goes back to scalability. And one of the things you spoke about the other day was the challenges with the electrification of the global grid. So can you talk to us a bit more about what that means? Well, sure. Um, and when you look around the world today, the U.S. Um, uh, is is consuming about 20 percent of global electricity. Um, uh, we account for uh, uh, with 300 million people. We don't we're less than 10 percent of global population. Um, it's unlikely that the rest of the world, particularly in the unplugged world, is going to be able to reach our level of wealth in terms of electricity use. But I think what we see already in southern Asia, what we see in Africa, um, is a, a, an increased use of hydrocarbons, mm -hmm. and um, and rightly so. I think particularly you look at Africa, uh, the opportunity there to use more natural gas fire generation is enormous, particularly given the enormous gas deposits that have been discovered offshore uh, Mozambique, Senegal, Tanzania. We're talking hundreds of trillions of cubic feet of gas. Mm -hmm. So I think inevitably those countries um, are going to look to gas fire generation as a logical uh, uh, answer for uh, some of their immediate needs rather than coal. And I think that's a really positive move. Um, re renewables are going to grow. But again, w you know, a, a terawatt of electricity generation is equal to the size of the U.S. grid. So this is, these are very, very big numbers. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I love this because coming from uh, the oil field, being very proud to be oil and gas and a portion of this energy spectrum, we face a lot of opposition, as you know. And it's one of our biggest challenges is communicating our story in a way that resonates with people. So because of your research and because of how you look at it as the full spectrum, I'm just thanking you because I think having this sort of knowledge in our back pockets is a better way for us to communicate our message. So thank you for that.
Um, my final question to you is sure. where are we headed? What's the next 20 years going to look like for energy demand? Are we going to start paying attention to the ethical issue behind energy and giving these nations who are off the grid the chance to join the grid? Well, I'll, I'll key off that last part of it first. Look, these countries are going to do whatever they want to do. They're not sitting around and waiting for Yankees to tell them how they should live their lives, <laughs> right? They're going to do what is in their self-interest. Yes. Um, and that is obviously the case in Japan, where they're building coal-fired power plants. They're not sitting around and waiting for us to give them the thumbs up. More power to them. Um, but I think that where is the world going to be You know, heading in the next 20 years? I think we're going to see the, you know, renewables are going to continue to grow. But I think what we're going to see as well is a lot more political battles yes. over the mandates. Um, so you have the Europeans saying they're going to create a green deal. Well, how effective and is that going to be and how politically acceptable will it be? Because they've already talked about ban and in some cases banning internal combustion engines. Well, really, you're going to make all your long haul over the road trucks electric? <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I'm skeptical about that because <laughs> for all of electric vehicles allure, the the diesel engine is a marvel, and exactly it's, and it, the, the the ability of the, the efficiency of these uh, auto cycle and, and diesel cycle engines are improving dramatically. So the idea that we're going to just suddenly phase off of oil and gas and coal, I, I don't believe it. I just I just think I'm, I'm very skeptical of that. Um, so I think in the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to see a lot of political battles, mm -hmm. but I think it's ultimately going to come back down to economics. And I think this economic downturn is going to underscore the trade-offs that are inevitable in, this, in, this, in these ideo in ideological and political battles. And the other thing I want to add is you do have five other books that are quite impressive. All of them incredible. You don't have to read them. You just have to buy them. Uh, download them on Audible and listen. <laughs> or download, download them on your Kindle. I make a better royalty. Oh, Kindle. Okay. Um, so, uh, but yes, uh, five books, all of them available. Uh, your favorite local bookseller, Amazon, et cetera, they're all available. So yes, by all means, buy it. Absolutely. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been such an educational process for me. I love this book. I downloaded it. I have the hard copy. I cannot wait to finish it. I mean, listening to your speeches and following your career, I think they mean everything for the energy industry. So thank you so much for all that you do, all the time you've taken today. Before I let you go, if people want to get in touch with you, if they want to follow you on social media, can you sure. give us a spiel? Sure. My website, uh, and that's very kind. Thank you. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I need some bigger hats now because my <laughs> head is growing. Uh, my website is robertbryce.com. Mm -hmm. My Twitter handle is uh, powerhungry, PWR hungry. Um, I also want to mention I have a new documentary called Juice, How Electricity That's Explains right. the World. Uh, you can find it on juicethemovie.com mm -hmm. or on Twitter, Juice for All, at Juice for All. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to be watching that this weekend. Well, thank you again so much, and I cannot wait to see what you do in the future. So just keep doing what you're doing. Thanks, guys. If today's episode brought you any sort of value, go online, rate, review, subscribe. 
Also, if you have any topics or influencers you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Thanks so much for your engagement, and until next week, give them hell.